want to thank you all for coming today. Uh, you're at a Capitol Hill briefing entitled Liberating Telemedicine. Um, for those unaware, the Cato Institute for over 40 years now has been a research organization dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, free markets, and peaceful international relations. We provide top-notch principled policy analysis to lawmakers and public policy staff all over the country and the world. Uh, this spring, we released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Copies were available on the table as you came in and included are over half a dozen chapters de detailing our recommendations for reforming the federal treatment of health care and health insurance. Chapter 35, in particular, addresses the regulations that put a significant drag on medical innovation, and there we suggest ways to limit costs to taxpayers while improving health care delivery and overall health care outcomes. Uh, if you'd like more copies, please contact me after the program. Uh, meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs of the entire 80-chapter volume are available at Cato.org. Um, if you're following via our live stream, we are happy to take questions um, and also to take questions from hashtag Cato events. Um, and with that, I'd like to introduce our guest today, Senator Brian Schatz, who is the senior senator representing the great state of Hawaii. Prior to coming to Washington, he served in the Hawaii House of Representatives and later as a lieutenant governor. He joined the Senate in late 12, 2012 and serves on four Senate committees, appropriations, banking, housing, and urban affairs, commerce, science, and transportation. And though today's Congress is marked by bitter disagreements and we have serious reservations about the agendas of both parties, I do like to see areas where the parties can get together on an issue and work to get liberalizing reforms over the finish line. That promising issue for today involves removing restrictions that prohibit the more widespread use of telemedicine or what's also called telehealth. Um, there's a long road ahead of us, but I invited Mr. Schatz here today as his work in the space, as well as his bipartisan efforts, reveals a real understanding of the importance of telemedicine and how it can have a transformational effect on healthcare delivery. Uh, I believe there's voting underway already in the Senate, so without much further ado, let's welcome Senator Brian Schatz. Uh, thank you uh, to, to you all for having me. Please enjoy your lunch. Don't feel shy. Uh, uh, I appreciate uh, that Cato is working on this issue. Uh, the report speaks to, the, to telehealth's ability to improve access to quality health care without expanding the role of government, and that's why we're here today. Uh, in August, I was at the Lanai Community Health Center. Uh, Lanai is home to just 3,000 people. It is currently all the private land, which is about 97% of the land owned by Larry Ellison. Uh, there's a single hospital and a handful of doctors that you can visit, and so you can imagine how uh, telehealth presents incredible opportunities. At the Lanai Health Center, they use telehealth to help patients to manage diabetes, to connect people to psychiatrists on other islands, even for dentistry. And for many of these services, the technology is not anything fancy. My dad was a physician, and back when he worked on telehealth at the University of Hawaii, there was a building for telehealth, there was an earmark for telehealth, there was a government, there was a whole structure that was very cumbersome. But nowadays, the basic requirement for telehealth is something that we all hold in our pockets. So long as you have a smartphone and a secure internet connection, you don't necessarily need a car or a plane to access healthcare, even if you need to see a specialist. Of course, nothing can replace face-to-face -face appointments with your doctor when it is needed, and some procedures, at least for now, uh, need to be done in person. But technology is reducing the list of things that must be done in person when it comes to healthcare, and patients' attitudes are changing. 10 years ago, if you were told to interact with your PCP via a laptop, you would have been irritated. 
Now, if you cannot, you are irritated. Um, especially when the alternative is making a trip to the doctor's office that could take several hours. In other words, telemedicine helps people to get on with their lives. Patients can avoid costly ER or urgent care visits. They can get timely, appropriate care and avoid long-term rehabilitation. Workers can keep working instead of taking time off to go to the doctor. And homebound patients can be spared the trek to the doctor. So telemedicine will save lives and save money and improve the quality of care. The US spent around $3.2 trillion on healthcare in 2015. That's about $10,000 per person. So if we can lower costs while also expanding access to healthcare, then we should. And that's what telemedicine allows us to do. Right now, there are a number of restrictions at both the federal and the state level that are holding us back. And Cato's report shines a light on some of those restrictions in the licensing space. We've been focusing on restrictions in reimbursement. Uh, there are restrictions on where patients must be located, both in physical location and geographic site. There are restrictions on the use of store and forward technology. Store and forward is essentially, here's the simplest uh, version of store and forward. Um, I, because I grew up uh, in Hawaii in the sun, um, anytime I get a freckle, I want to know whether it's something to be worried about. Normally, you call your PCP, I'm Kaiser, they schedule an appointment, I'm never home. You know, it's two or three weeks at least. I got to drive over there, I got to wait, you know, the whole thing, right? Now, I take a picture, I send an email to my PCP, he sends it over to dermatology. In 24 hours, they tell me whether or not it's something that, that merits coming in. I also double checked to make sure that this wasn't some kind of concierge senator service. This is actually <laughs> something uh, that they provide to everyone. That's the simplest version of store and forward, but it could be an x-ray, uh, it could be any image, uh, any data that can be stored and then forwarded uh, in an encrypted fashion, or if it's just a freckle, it doesn't even need to be uh, encrypted. Um, senator Wicker and I have drafted legislation called the Connect for Health Act. I see. Uh, many staffers from members of the House and Senate. So here's my pitch. I, I, uh, I talked to you folks about the need for, uh, for support, both at the state and the federal level, for lifting licensing restrictions. Um, we're doing s some of that in VA, as you probably are aware of. But what we're doing is trying to reduce the bureaucratic uh, tangle that is presented by 1834M of, of uh, the Medicare Act, which basically uh, was written before any of this technology was even contemplated. And here's the beauty of this bill. Even though we are fighting like cats and dogs about health care more generally, the reason that we have, I think it's 18 members of the Senate and a couple of dozen members of the House, uh, bicameral, bipartisan, uh, key legislators on, on key committees uh, of both chambers and both parties, is that this reduces costs and increases the quality of care. And it matters for urban folks, but it also matters for the medically fragile. It matters uh, for hospital systems. There's kind of nobody that disagrees with this except a few people in Medicare, um, and that's fine. So um, my pitch to you is to continue to study this issue and to view this as an opportunity to unleash the power of the private sector, uh, the power of science, the power of technology in a way that is consistent with progressive values because I want to increase the availability and quality of care and with conservative values because uh, conservatives want to make sure that we're spending every penny wisely. This is a smart bill. About half of the Connect for Health Act was 
was adopted in Senator Hatch's um, uh, uh, legislation, which is now in the possession of the House. So the House is moving on it. But this is the, I don't know if it's the only space, but it is one of the only spaces where there's good bipartisan agreement. I'll end with this. I was talking to a colleague who wrote a little provision 25 years ago in a bill when he was a member of the House. And he confided in me that he thinks that he had no idea at the time, but that it's probably the most important thing that he's ever done. And I feel like what we're doing in telehealth is actually that revolutionary. And just because we're not fighting about it doesn't make it unimportant. It makes it, in a lot of ways, more important. So for those of you who's, who's, um, whose offices are participating in this process, we want to thank you. We want to continue the partnership. For those of you who are maybe going to report back through your legislative shop or your comms shop uh, about whether or not this is worth looking at, I urge you to look at it from the standpoint of the needs of your constituents. Every state has rural constituencies. Every state has the medically fragile. Every state has veterans. Every state has people who don't necessarily want to go to the dock just to put a, a, a piece of equipment on their body that they could be wearing in any case. Every state has these needs, and nobody wants to spend a penny more on health care than we must. This is an area for bipartisan agreement, and I thank Cato for providing me the opportunity uh, to uh, describe it to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, the vote's disallowed uh, any questioning, unfortunately, but we will open up questions at the end. Um, but with that, I want to briefly introduce Michael F. Cannon, who is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Uh, he is most known for his indefatigable work on the repeal of Obamacare, having been called by the New Republic Obamacare's single most relentless antagonist. He is also known around the office and at home as the intellectual father of King versus Burwell. Is that right? At home, even? Well, yeah. At home? Yeah, sure. You call me other things at home. Just father. <laughs> uh, he has appeared on all the major networks. His articles have been featured in the national periodicals, as well as the Harvard Health Policy Review, the Yale Journal of Health Policy, and many others. He is the co-editor of Replacing Obamacare, the Cato Institute on Healthcare Reform, and is the co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare, and How to Free It. Uh, previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he advised the Senate leadership on stuff pertaining to the Health Committee, as well as the Second Amendment. Uh, he has an MA in Economics and a JM in Law and Economics from George Mason University, and is a member of the Board of Advisors for the Harvard Health Policy Review. Uh, and then next up will be Dr. Shirley Savorny, who is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and a professor of economics at California State University at Northridge. An expert on the regulation of healthcare professionals, including medical professional licensing, she is a frequent participant in health policy summits. Um, though she works and resides out of California, we're happy to work with um, member offices who want more assistance on this stuff, as is Michael. Um, her related publications include articles in Econ Journal Watch, Contemporary Economic Policy, Public Choice, and also many others. She has also contributed chapters on medical licensing in the Encyclopedia of Law and Economics, as well as the Half-Life of Policy Rationales, How New Technology Affects Old Policy Issues. Uh, so with that, let's welcome Michael Cannon. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I was sort of seeing my role here mostly just introducing Shirley, because uh, Shirley's the reason for this event. Um, and, uh, and Peter's done much of that uh, work already, so there's not much left for me to say other than uh, at the Cato Institute, um, uh, we're often asked the question, why is it that we don't see in healthcare the same thing we see in other sectors of the economy? 
uh, where prices fall at the same time quality rises. And I think that Shirley has provided in this paper one of the answers to that question. Uh, it is because the, we don't let quality improve while prices fall. We, government uh, at the federal level, but in this case mostly at the state level, puts up obstacles that prevent competition from generating those sorts of cost-saving and quality-improving innovations uh, that would benefit uh, patients and low-income patients the most. And uh, so, again, as, as Peter mentioned, Shirley, uh, we're proud to have Shirley as an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. She's a professor of uh, economics at the um, uh, Cal State University, Northridge. But also, I would argue she's the leading expert on the economics of clinician licensing. And so, without any further ado, I just turn it over to Shirley to talk to us about telemedicine. Thanks. Thanks. So thanks for coming, and it's nice to see you. I am kind of unbelievably fixated on licensing medical professionals, and so it was a natural transition to look at uh, this telemedicine issue. And um, Senator Schatz did such a good idea of um, such a good uh, he does such a good job of introducing you guys to telemedicine. I'm sure. How many of you have ever used uh, telemedicine to talk to your doctor, like a video? That's it. Four of you. Well, interestingly enough, he's um, in Hawaii and he has Kaiser, and I have Kaiser in Southern California. And the fact that Kaiser has gone so big into telemedicine tells us that it really is a cost-saving thing because Kaiser is a capitated program. In other words, they get one fixed amount for us for the whole year, and so they have an incentive to keep us healthy, not to have us come back into the hospital. And so they, um, in Hawaii and in California, they experimented with. Um, um, email messages really early, like they reduced office visits in Hawaii by 25% by letting people just have email consultations with their doctors. So I use it all the time in California. Now I've read that 52% of Kaiser's patient-doctor interactions are via email or phone. So um, if anybody tells you it's not going to save money, you have to go back and look at why would a private company, it's nonprofit, but why would a private company that's capitated do it. I mean, that's a private company do it, and the answer is it's capitated and they have a strong incentive to do anything that will save them money. Like they practically lasso you to give you a flu shot. You're walking into the building and they like trip you and say, have you had your flu shot? Because they don't want you to get sick. So um, Senator Schatz talked already about telemedicine. The, the only things he didn't mention were initially it was used in the military, which is kind of cool, you know, because it was hard to transport people, and also they use it for prisoners. Um, taking prisoners to a hospital is very difficult, you know, because you need all the safety precautions, and so um, they can look to see if someone really needs to go to a hospital or not. And the same thing in rural areas. They've, there's hospitals in rural areas that were failing um, because everyone just had to go to the urban area to get care, and now these hospitals can decide who needs to go and who doesn't and treat the people locally who don't need to go. So that that reinforces the availability of care in rural areas where we've, for, you know, forever, as long as I can remember, we've been trying to get doctors to locate in rural areas. And, you know, you're here and most people are here. Doctors don't want to locate in rural areas. So the benefits are actually more than just cost saving and the commute time that the senator was talking about. There's also, you don't have to build as many facilities. Um, <laughs> and um, there's quality of life issues. Doctors can... I think a lot of, you know, they talk about how the supply, all the baby boomers are going to retire. I think a bunch of them may end up doing part-time telemedicine. I have a friend who's a neurologist, and um, so emergency care, one of the most amazing Im improvements has been this 
telestrokes, if you have a stroke, um, it's really important to get you care right away. They say time is brain. Um, and, and they can get a, tel a telemedicine neurologist in the room within like five to seven minutes faster than they could even get one there who's on the premises. Um, and so I'm, my friend who does this, he gets paid $200 a pop, or he said that last year, I don't know what it is now. Um, so I'm thinking he might retire and just do some of this because it's fairly straightforward. So maybe the supply of physicians won't contract as much as we think it will when the baby boomers retire. Um, so I want to talk about interstate telemedicine. So, you know, whenever I do this, I have to remind myself which is intra and which is inter. Do you have to as well? Or, you know, and I'm an economist and I should know. But, um, right, so within the state is intra and between two states is interstate. And so there are issues within states. Um, as the senator was referring, there's issues with reimbursement. There's all kinds of rules that, may, that they're, they're getting rid of a lot of them. So the states that have the most restrictive rules about how you needed to meet in person first, Texas had that, all those have pretty much gone away. Um, but we still are stuck with the one I want the, the big thing that I want to talk about today, which is across states. And the problem is that in the United States, every single state requires that you have a license to practice in that state. So uh, if you want to do telemedicine and you want to have, you want to treat people in 10 or 15 states, you have to seek, apply for, and maintain licenses in all those states. And that's the barrier. So let me try and have you, give you an idea of why it's a barrier. Now, obviously, there's the initial costs and the initial effort, um, but there's also, you have to practice under the state um, clinical practice rules. And they're, they're not hugely different, but they're different enough to make it a barrier. This woman who works for um, Teladoc, which is one of those companies that you might have used if you called to get care, um, said, which is kind of funny actually, because Teladoc is all online, but she has 30 volumes of, 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 fold of notebooks in her office about all these different state rules. She was hoping she could get rid of them one day, and I hope she can too. But the one I know the most about is um, uh, informed consent. Half the states have one kind of legal informed consent requirement, and the other half have a different, and then they also have specific rules about informed consent, and so you just have to make sure you're always doing everything right. Um, another problem is that, um, sorry. Um, there's also variations in continuing medical education requirements. So when you're a doctor, some states have 60 hours every two years or 120 hours every three years, um, and they're not the same. Five states have no continuing medical education requirements, and a lot of people say they're kind of worthless, you know, that it doesn't have to be in your area that you work in, and so five states got rid of them. So if you live in one of those states and you want to practice in another, you have to meet their um, continuing medical education requirements, and they're not straightforward. Like in California, if 25% of your patients are over 65, you have to specifically have 20% of your continuing medical education in geriatric treatment. So if you can imagine how complicated it would be if you have to meet all these rules in 30 states or 50 states. Um, there's other odd things that I, I won't go into. So, um, so the question is, people have always said it's a barrier to interstate practice. I read it so many times, I just believed it. And then somebody said to me, well, is it? So I tried to find some empirical evidence. Um, and I found some quotes by people who are in the 
in the trenches who say that it is. Uh, there's a company called eVisits that runs um, online telemedicine services, and they say, uh, and I'm gonna quote them, the arduous nature of these laws, and here the, re the arduous nature of these state licensing laws, defeat the quick convenience of telemedicine. So telemedicine could be convenient, but you have all these things that get in the way, that you have to make sure that you are treating somebody in a state where you're licensed and you have to follow all these state-specific rules that aren't really super relevant. Um, they surveyed healthcare executives, the American Telemedical Association, American Telemedicine Association surveyed healthcare executives and 53% of them picked licensing and, and certification as one of the top um, issues in moving telemedicine forward. They were talking about interstate barriers. Um, they, in 2012, they surveyed the, the Health Resources and Services Administration, surveyed um, telehealth, pro, telestroke programs. This is that stroke programs I was telling you about earlier. And they also identified it as a major barrier. And finally, I, I talked to this guy once in a while who runs the So there's these private companies that help doctors get licensed in all these states. like. If you want to get licensed in 30 or 40 states, it's, it's a big process. So you go to these companies, and one of them is called medlicense.com. And uh, the guy who runs it is really interesting. He's been willing to talk to me, which is cool. And he was telling me that when the doctors come to them, they actually give them a discount if they're willing to get more licenses. So the first licenses cost the most. And if you buy you know, 20 licenses, the incremental ones don't cost as much or 50, he said some doctors actually get 50 licenses. So, or 51, or actually it's more than that because Puerto Rico, and so, though I'm not sure how many it is. But anyway, um, he was saying that doctors, even though it's cheaper to do it all at one time, they don't want to do it because they don't want to be stuck with the annual fees. And the annual fees are something like, it's $200 about, about on a, it's on annual, on an annual basis, it's about $200. But I guess if you have 30 or 50 states and you don't practice, plan to practice in some of them, you just don't get the license. So he actually said that it's these uh, licensing fees that create this barrier to these people uh, uh, licensing across all the states. So that's my empirical evidence. So the, the consequences of all this is that you, you don't have uh, access to care and you have higher prices because you don't have competition. And um, if you think about it, this hurts low-income people the most because low-income people can't travel. They don't have the money to travel across state lines for care. And the fact that you're precluding competition in the state means that you're not going to have as many providers and that prices are going to be higher. And so while wealthier people can pull it off, poor people are in the most trouble. And, and in California, you'd think, well, how could there be a problem there? We have so many specialists. But our Medi-Cal, which is our Medicaid program, it doesn't reimburse, we have low reimbursement rates. And so it's really hard for Medi-Cal patients to get specialists to treat them. If we were to open our markets to specialists in other states, they might be willing to do it. And I just wrote an op-ed where I was hoping to make that point. Um, seems straightforward to me. Um, so one point I wanna make about getting rid of these licenses, which I think would maybe only occur to a someone like me, an economist, I don't know, maybe it would occur to others, is this idea that when you have a whole national market, you can get really big results. Um, like when they deregulated trucking in the United States, this was, you know, a few decades ago, I wrote a paper about 
deregulation at the state level with a colleague maybe like 20 years ago. And we talked about deregulation of this is state level of trucking, banking. And in, in, in these cases, you ended up with um, huge economies of scale, innovation, competition that you didn't have before. Um, and I think that people don't think about that in medicine because we rarely think about medicine as, as being something where competition is relevant. Um, but if you think about the people who are making, producing the electronic medical records, um, Epic and, um, I think of the other name, but it's not coming to me. Um, anyway, there's three big companies. Oh, Epic, Cerner, and Meditech are the three companies. They have 70% of the market. And they put tons of money into investment, innovation, because they can sell their products so broadly. And I think that you might see some of the same things in telemedicine, like this company, Teladoc, um, and other American Well. There are already huge amounts of money are going into this industry. But if they could take the same product and roll it out in all of these states and not have to worry about this licensing barrier, reimbursement is obviously another issue. I think you just see a lot more innovation. Another example is retail sales. Um, you know, Target and Walmart and Amazon have been able to use, to think of really clever ways to distribute their products into the supply chain that they wouldn't have if we made them stick to individual states. So I just want to put that in your head so you think about there, there's actually this broader picture about why you might want to have a, a, a national um, market for any particular doctor that they could treat patients in any state. So what are our options? First, I'm going to talk about state options and then federal options. And usually I prefer state solutions, but nothing's happening at the state level. So I'm going to end up supporting a federal intervention. The, at the state level, um, one thing you could do, you know, I know I cringe whenever I say this because they're all going to go like, what? But you could get rid of licensing in its entirety. So you'd have to, I mean, I've thought about this for 20 years. And I don't think that the states, I think the state boards are captured by special interests, that the doctors influence the state boards. I think they protect doctors. They don't, they don't sanction them. There's tons of evidence. Look at Public Citizen and other organizations that look at what the states are doing. And it's just hard to argue that they're benefiting patients. And in fact, they're making healthcare more expensive because they're limiting the supply and raising the price. So it's bad for all of us, and it's particularly bad for poor people. So it's just, I mean, if you haven't ever thought of this before, I know that sounds really extreme. When I say anything like that in my health econ class, I usually give them like a whole few days to warm up to the idea that maybe you could like get rid of licensing doctors without the world ending. Because people say, well, oh, no, I only want a licensed doctor. But then I try to explain that that's not how you're protected. The way you're protected is that anybody who hires a doctor Anybody who insures a doctor, anybody who reimburses a doctor, any hospital that lets a doctor work there, they all check them out in gory detail, way more than the state board does. And they do it on a recurrent basis because they're liable and they have a reputation to protect. So if you're interested in more of that, you can read some of the stuff I've written. But I basically make the case that all of these organizations um, spend huge amounts of time and money making sure that the people that are treating you, uh, at, at least, I mean, I know we're not saying every doctor is in good shape, but I'm saying the, pro the protections you get are from this process, not from the state boards. I, I, when I was writing a paper about malpractice, I talked to this guy at a company where all they do is insure doctors um, who are like hard to insure, that is doctors who have bad records. 
and most of them had never been sanctioned by a state board. So, and the same thing, Public Citizen has looked at all the people who have bad records at the National Practitioner Database, and they've never been sanctioned by their state boards. I don't know, did you just hear that story about the VA and how they have these doctors who are doing really terrible things? And even some of those weren't sanctioned by their state boards. So if you've never thought about giving, getting rid of licensing and you want to be the one other person on the planet who thinks it's a good idea, <laughs> you can read my stuff. So the second thing we could do is um, license portability. So portability means that you can take your license from one state to another. And so two states could agree. There's a little bit of that going on in the United States. Um, or one state could just say anybody could come and practice here. So uh, there's only one state that's even moved in that direction, Florida. They had a bill in, in 2016, it was in their house, it didn't get through the Senate, that would have allowed any doctor anywhere to practice in Florida as long as they didn't come in there and practice, but if they just did it by telemedicine. Um, and after the fact, I was thinking, why Florida? But you know how many people go there in the winter to get away from the cold? I think it's like a million people a year. And so it makes sense. And, and, and how old are they? Like old people, right? They want to be able to call their doctors. So at first I went like, why Florida? But it, didn't take, it took me a while, actually, to figure it out. But I couldn't find it online. I had to make it up. So I don't know what they really, why they're really doing it, but I think that's why. Um, there is something called the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. Have you heard of that? Does your state belong to it? I don't know if you've ever heard of it. So, so the state boards were worried that the federal government was going to start to have some kind of a telemedicine license because people, since the late 90s, have been calling for something to allow this interstate practice. So all the state medical boards got together. They have a federation of state medical boards, and they got some money from the federal government, and they set up what's called the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. And the idea was to distract us all from what we really need to do <laughs> with this thing that won't do it at all. But it has a name that makes it sound like it does. So it has the same name as the Nurse Licensure Compact and the Physical Therapy Compact, but those do have license portability albeit they still have to follow the rules of the state. And those people more often are, are moving, not so much practicing across states via telemedicine. But the doctor's one has no portability into it. But that didn't stop them from having their web page be um, licenseportability.org and, and uh, getting money from this federal program for license portability. And I just saw the guy who runs the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact at an FTC um, round table, and he never once said it didn't have portability, even when there was a question about portability. So, so that is the kind of thing that could work if all the states got together and said, yeah, we're going to all agree that doctors can practice across states, but it doesn't do that. All it does is facilitate the initial licensing. And they have now taken the word portability out of all their web pages. And I think it's because I wrote some op-eds, but I don't want to take that much credit. If, it, if it's a me, it's the most impactful thing I've ever done in my life. So, okay. so the other two options are federal. And some people say, well, the federal government can't do this. This is a state. Only the states can do this. It's not in... The federal government didn't do it, it was left to the states, the 10th Amendment protects it. But a bunch of lawyers are starting to say that it falls under the Commerce Clause. They're, 
you're interfering with interstate commerce. And there's actually other clauses of the Constitution that they think could be used to justify congressional action on this. So um, there's two things Congress could do. One is they could have a federal license. It could either be just for telemedicine or they could take over all licensing. You know, I personally don't think that's a good idea because I already see how much the state boards are influenced by special interests and how they limit supply. And I think it'd just be even worse if it was at the federal level where I think the AMA has even more power, the American Medical Association has even more power. So I'm not a big fan of that idea to set up another bureaucracy and, and just create another place where you can restrict the supply of doctors. So what I, the one I really think makes the most sense, given that the states aren't acting, like my first choice is to get Hawaii or Florida to move forward with this kind of legislation that would just let other doctors practice in their state. But um, you can change the legal definition of the location of the practice of medicine. So right now, the location of the practice of medicine is where the patient is. So if I'm in California and I talk to a doctor in Ohio, the location of the practice of medicine is in California. But if I travel to Ohio to, to see that doctor, the location is in Ohio. So if I travel, he doesn't need a California license to treat me. But if I'm in California, he does. So if Congress, all they have to do, <laughs> I know it's not that simple, but to get people you know, thinking this way, but if you could get Congress to change the location of the practice of medicine to the location of the physician, that is medicine is being practiced where the doctor is, that would make it so that every doctor could practice on one license, their home state license, with one set of rules. And one advantage of this is right now, you have these doctors that are licensed in 20 or 30 states. What if a doctor is under investigation in one state? Well, the Interstate Medical Licensure Compact promised its states that it would have some kind of a database that they would allow them to talk to one another about investigations. And they've already started issuing licenses, and the database is still a, just a fantasy. It's, it's not even the guy was speaking at this FTC roundtable, and he said they hadn't even moved on it. Um, so he's, they made it sound like it's so important to patient safety. I don't see how it could work. State boards never are willing to talk about what they're doing. They like to protect the doctors. They're not going to tell 30 other states what they're doing. But anyway, that's not happening. So um, the advantage of changing the location of practice of medicine is that the doctor, if there's a complaint, it goes to the one state. So there's no problem with all the states having to figure out what's going on with this doctor. And it doesn't happen very often, um, but it would just make it a lot cleaner. Uh, so the advantages of this, uh, there, there actually is a precedent. Medicare, the, the, in 2011, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the CMS, why don't they have two M's in that? that bother you that it's just CMS instead of CMMS? It just bothers me. If you ever find out, just send me an email, okay? I really want to know. They passed a law, or passed a ruling that if you, to, so these rural hospitals were having trouble. They were getting care from a doctor in another state, but the hospitals have to privilege. Remember I told you they don't just let anybody practice that the reason you're protected is that the hospital checks out the doctors. And it was too expensive and difficult for these rural hospitals to check out all these doctors. So CMS said all of that could happen. They could just take the word of the hospital where the doctor already is. In other words, the doctor's home state. So it, it's kind of a 
this out-of-state quality certification that they're allowing them to use in, in this situation and that it's the same thing I'm asking for um, when it comes to allowing doctors to practice in your state, that you're willing to use the out-of-state certification. You don't have to um, you know, do it yourself. Um, the advantage of just changing just, I keep saying just like that could really happen, but the advantage of Congress moving to change it is that it doesn't require individual state action, which we already see is going nowhere. It's been like since the late 1990s that people have been, I know that for some of you, isn't that older than some of you are? Anyway, <laughs> you know that, um, that they've been saying we really need to do something about this. So it's one of the reasons I'm willing to say that the feds have to stick their two cents in here. And the other point, and I think, Michael, I think you were the one who made this point to me, is that if, like if one state opens their borders, the doctors in that state may think, oh, we're just going to get all this competition, and they may not like it. But if they all open them at the same time, it also makes it possible for the doctors in that state to provide services elsewhere. And so somehow maybe that would make up for the fact that they're, they're getting more competition, but they also can then provide services elsewhere. And I think you would see a lot more. For people who have really rare conditions, this would be amazing, right? Because then a few people could specialize in treating people who have really rare conditions. And right now, that's just really hard to do. You have to like travel, and if you don't have the money, good luck. So um, I think that the time is ripe for something to happen because I don't know how much economics you've had, but there's this part of economics called public choice where you it kind of predicts how politicians are going to act. And usually there's some pressures from one group, in this case the doctors and the state medical boards, they don't want change. But sometimes there's countervailing pressures that make them change the balance of the political equilibrium. And in this case, we have this increased demand for health care. We have, uh, we're already seeing big changes just because of it. There, a lot of states are allowing nurse practitioners to practice independently, I mean, who would have thought, right? And so maybe this is kind of, it happened before too in the, in the 60s when they passed Medicare and Medicaid, they let foreign doctors practice, they, they just made it super easy to come to the US, they changed all the laws. So, um, and I wrote my dissertation about that actually. So the idea is that this might be the right time and like the senator said, it should get bipartisan support. So it's just a windfall for everybody if we move forward on um, this change in the location of the practice of medicine. So that's all I have to say. Thank you for listening. And, um